Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, you have been so kind and so merciful to us in giving us the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross for our sin. You have been so kind and merciful to us in giving us the Holy Spirit in our hearts that he might shape us and form us and guide us and we pray for his work now as we study what you have said in scriptures. That he would be alive and active in us, giving us attentive minds that understand the scriptures and soft hearts that are willing to change to form our life around what you have said in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Saving Private Ryan is a movie that tells the story of the US Army's mission to save Private Ryan. Private Ryan, he's just an ordinary soldier, stuck in enemy territory during the war. He has three brothers who are in the war as well. They all die in the same week. And to spare his mother the pain of losing all four sons, his army commander mounts a mission to save Private Ryan, to bring him safely home, to spare his mum the heartache of losing all four sons in war. The mission is successful. They save him. They bring him home, but at great cost. It is a costly mission. People die to rescue him. People die to save him. His rescue costs their lives. And at the end of the movie... Private Ryan, now an old man and closer to the end of his life, visits the graves of the soldiers that died to save him. And he says to his dead friend this line, I tried to live my life the best I could. I hope it was enough. He is desperate at that graveyard to feel that the life that he led was somehow worthy of the sacrifice of that soldier. And he turns to his wife and basically pleads with her, tell me I led a good life, tell me I'm a good man. He is desperate to feel that the life he led was somehow worthy of that sacrifice, that he didn't waste his life that was bought at such a great cost. Now I think as Christians we understand that. I don't mean we understand it intellectually, I mean I think we understand that personally emotionally, because all of us have been given life eternal by Jesus laying down his life on the cross. All of us have been given life by Jesus' great and costly sacrifice. And one day, at the end of my earthly life, I'm going to stand before him, my gracious Lord and Saviour, and I'm going to look him in the eye and stand there face to face and as I do that, I, I really want to be assured that the life I led was worthy of him. Not, now, hear me clearly, not meaning I want to know that the life I led was good enough to earn his forgiveness or to pay God back for what he has done. I can never do that. We can never earn his forgiveness. We can never pay him back for what he has done. It is unmerited, unearnable grace and forgiveness. That is assured. But what I want to know is that the life that I led was worthy of Jesus, that I didn't waste the life on earth that he gave me, that my life somehow reflects in some tangible way what Jesus has done, shows gratitude for what he did, was somehow affected by his sacrifice. Am I living a life worthy of the one who saved me? That is the burning question at the end of Saving Private Ryan. And I think it's a question that resonates in the heart of any Christian who senses the sheer magnitude of what Jesus has done in laying down his life to save us. Are you 
Are you living a life worthy of Jesus and all he has done for you? That question, I think, very quickly becomes, how would I know? Like, what does a life worthy of Jesus look like? I mean, I get that I can't earn it, I get I can't pay him back, but what does it look like to live a life that is worthy of him? Well, good news, the passage that we just read is going to answer that for us quite clearly. Look at the opening words of verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is what this passage is about, a life that is worthy of the gospel. And everything that follows describes what that worthy life looks like so that we might be able to live it and to know with a surety that our lives are worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There's three characteristics that follow of what a life worthy of Jesus looks like and I think the most encouraging thing about these three things is they're actually doable. You don't need to do anything grand, we just need to learn how to stand. All three characteristics of a life worthy of Jesus are to do with how we stand. The first element is to stand firm in our faith of the gospel, not being the kind of people who are pushed into hiding our Christianity. Verse 27, read it with me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, here comes the first way to do that. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So the Philippians are being opposed, their Christianity is being pushed back, and and that's not surprising. When Paul first came to Philippi 10 years earlier in Acts chapter 16, he was beaten and he was put in prison for preaching the gospel. Now, 10 years later, the Philippian church are having the same kind of experience Paul had. They're suffering for the gospel, they're being opposed because they're Christians. Look at verse 29. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, i.e. when I came to your town 10 years ago and I was beaten up and put in prison, and you now hear that I still have, i.e. they've just heard that he's again in prison in Rome and he's about to be tried for his life. See, they are suffering and being opposed for the gospel, just like Paul was, just like they saw Paul 10 years ago. Now, if you want to wriggle out of that, if you want to not be mocked and ridiculed, beaten and imprisoned, what's the easiest way to avoid it? easiest way is to just not publicly identify as a Christian. So when people are hostile or mocking to you because you're a Christian, the easiest way to solve that is just to shrink back, to not identify as a Christian, to hide our Christianity. So Paul writes to them to encourage them to stand firm, to not shrink back, because to shrink back would be unworthy of the gospel. That is unworthy of Jesus who gave his life for them. That would be like if Private Ryan uh, at the cemetery was embarrassed to admit that he knew those men who died for him. That would be terrible. But to shrink back from public association of Jesus would be even worse because the love and sacrifice that Christ has for his people is much greater than what those soldiers had for Private Ryan. They did it because it was their duty. They were commanded to. To privately confess Jesus 
uh, in this church and, and in our homes, but to publicly hide and to shrink back is unworthy of the gospel of the one who gave his life for us. And so the first element in living a life worthy of the gospel is standing firm. Or the way Paul put it, standing firm, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I think it's, it's worth drilling down here because when Paul says without being frightened by those who oppose you, I don't think he means without any emotions, like with having no emotions of being scared or anxious at the idea of people belittling you or mocking you or imprisoning you. Those feelings of anxiety and worry in that are completely normal. But it becomes unworthy of the gospel when it leads us to shrink back from Christ. You are free, I think, to have feelings of, of fear and worry when standing firm for Jesus, as long as, it, as long as we keep standing firm for Jesus. That is a life worthy of the gospel. And Paul himself is a really good example of that. You, you know, Paul was worried and anxious and fearful when standing firm for the gospel, right? Let me read to you what he wrote to the Corinthians. He said this about the time that he rolled into town to stand firm for the gospel. He said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimonies of God. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. When Paul came to Corinth to stand firm for the gospel, he came with fear. He came with trembling. The thing about him is it didn't stop him standing firm for the gospel. His fear and anxiety and opposition at the gospel, that's fine. That is normal, I think. It just becomes unworthy if it leads us to shrink back. Now, I think that's encouraging because it means that to live a life worthy of the gospel, you don't need to do some massive, impressive thing like go to Singapore and start a new Bible college, to plant a church, to become a pastor, to become a famous and successful missionary. You don't need to do something grand You just need to learn how to stand firm. That's a life worthy of the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we had O-Day down at UWA. Uh, Here's a picture from it. We asked passers-by to finish this sentence, I think Jesus is, and then we gave them this little fluffy coloured ball to put into a jar to finish off that sentence. So they could vote for, I think Jesus is a myth or a moral teacher. I think Jesus is a con man. I think Jesus is Lord. Now, the only tense moments that I witnessed uh, on that day was when a group of friends would all walk past and someone would say, hey, let's go and vote. And so they'd all vote and the first guy would drop his thing in the Jesus is a myth and the next guy would drop it in Jesus is a con man and they'd all vote like that. And then there's one guy who's kind of really uncomfortable and he's feeling the tension because he's a Christian and he's struggling because he's thinking, these are people from my class I don't really know them, I just kind of met up with them uh, today. They don't really know me, they certainly don't know I'm a Christian. So if I put this in the Jesus is Lord jar, they'll they'll know. But I can't put it in any of the other jars because I don't feel like that's right. And then after that kind of struggle, they reach forward, they drop it in the jar that says, I think Jesus is Lord. And as they walk off, you just know that the conversation is going like this. Why did you put your thing in the you think Jesus is Lord jar? And I, whenever I see that happen, I just want to run up to that guy behind him and just give him a high five and say to him, I say, do you just realise what you did? 
you stood firm. Now, maybe you don't think that's a big deal, but I want to tell you that according to the Scriptures, you are living a life worthy of the Gospel. Do you realise that? We have to make those kind of stands all the time. When your university friends make jokes at your expense because you are a Christian and you're tempted to hide your love for the Lord Jesus, stand firm. That is a life worthy of the Gospel. When the school mums at the gate make snide comments about scripture in school, stand firm. Standing firm is a life worthy of the gospel. When your work colleagues make a mocking comment about Christianity and then ask for your opinion, stand firm. Because what you're doing is living a life worthy of the gospel. I think it is really good for us to recognise that lives that are worthy of the gospel are not just lived out in those big headline-grabbing endeavours of church planting and missionary movements. No. Worthy lives of the gospel are lived out in the ordinary daily lives of God's children as they stand firm for the gospel at the school gate, at the dinner table and at university. Want to live a life worthy of the gospel? You don't have to do something grand. You just need to stand. Stand firm. Secondly, stand together. Notice in the next few verses all the references to standing together and being united. Chapter 2, verse 1, if you've got it in front of you. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, meaning if the gospel has had any impact on you at all, if, it, if it's even just gone in slightly surface level, then, verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Now those verses, that is clearly about the Philippians standing together, being united, being one spirit, being one mind. But what are they supposed to be one mind in? Is it one mind in musical taste? Is it one mind in which political system is best? No, notice the context. Paul's just told them to stand firm for the gospel. Now he calls them to stand together, be united, be in one mind in that, in standing firm for the gospel. Because if they don't stand firm when they face opposition, if they don't stand together, they won't stand at all. It's like when your favourite sporting team has two really big kind of personalities in it that have a falling out, they have a dispute, and the team starts losing games because the team is now divided. And the sports fans are like, are you guys kidding me? You're on the same team. You have the same goal. You have the same purpose. How are you not united? There's something kind of unfitting, isn't there, about teammates with the same goal but are not united. There's something more unfitting, in fact, unworthy for Christians to not be united because Christians are not simply on the same team. Look at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being on the same ultimate Frisbee team... No. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, that is a list of all the stuff that Paul expects to be true of them because they're Christian. They are united in Jesus. They do share the same Spirit. And if that's true, 
in verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind, in standing firm together for the things that you're united in, in standing firm for gospel stuff. This is not a call for us as a church to have the same opinion on non-gospel issues, like musical taste and length of services and that kind of stuff. No, this is a call to stand together, be of one mind when it comes for standing firm for the gospel. And tragically, I think Paul writes this whole section because the Philippians weren't doing it, because there was relational distance and fractures in the church. In a few weeks' time, we're going to get to chapter 4 and we're going to read this. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. Uh, Now, we don't know what their disagreements was about, but that kind of sharp personal division that affects ministry together as a church is unworthy of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is about uniting the biggest relational division in world history. The gospel unites a holy, perfect God with sinful enemies in rebellion. And if the gospel can overcome that greatest relational division in the universe, there's something unfitting if it doesn't manage to unite little Euodia and Syntyche in whatever their beef is. That's kind of unfitting. Do you want to live a life worthy of the gospel? Then wherever possible, as much as it's up to you, and and I say as much as it's up to you because actually sometimes it's not, but as much as it's up to you, be of one mind with the same goals with your brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of the gospel. Now, I think that's encouraging, again, because do you know what that means? That means for every single person that you are of one mind with in the advance of the gospel here, you are living a life worthy of the Lord Jesus. So let me make this really practical. I got here this morning, it was about 9.30, I was in a bit of a rush. Uh, There was several musicians, a PowerPoint operator, uh, a sound desk operator and a service leader all working together on today's service that the gospel might be preached. Now, I don't know if they ever thought of this as they were doing that, but that is a life worthy of the gospel. Being of one mind, of one spirit, standing together in gospel stuff. Do you see how encouraging that is? Because that's doable, right? Do you want to live a life worthy of the gospel? You don't need to do something grand, you just need to stand. Number one, stand firm. Number two, stand together. And lastly, and I think the most critical thing in this chapter, is stand last. Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now that is crazy. That is crazy. Like, self-ambition, considering my own interests, uh, well, that's just the operating system that I was born with. Like, we naturally make decisions and take actions for us and our personal interests, right? And that seems to go okay because everyone else in the world does that as well. That is how the world works. 
Our human nature is to look out for number one, to stand first. But here, Christians are called, in humility, to value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. If you want to summarise that, you could say we are called to stand last with each other, not stand first. But why is that worthy of the Gospel? Why is standing last and thinking of others, why is that in step with the Gospel? It's because that is how Jesus lived. And that is why verse 5 onwards calls us to have the same mindset as Jesus. Look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That is such a stunning picture. That is a stunning picture of God the Son before he came to earth as the person we know of Jesus. Before his birth as a human, God the Son was in heaven. Verse 6, he was in very nature God. Yet despite that exalted position, God the Son did not consider that position as something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't look out for number one. He didn't stand first, rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He became a lowly human. He stepped into history as the man that history called Jesus of Nazareth. That is what it's talking about when it says it made him, he made himself nothing being made in human likeness. That phrase, made himself nothing, is literally, he emptied himself. Not meaning he emptied himself of the bits of him that were God and then just kind of added in the bits that were human. No, when God the Son became Jesus the human, he's still in very nature God. What he emptied himself of was not his God nature. What he emptied himself of was his privilege, his position, his status. He tips that out throws it away and takes the very nature of a servant. He who created the world now becomes subject to hunger. He who created the power of the sun from nothing now becomes so fragile he can get sunburned. He who commanded the angels of heaven now has to work for his food as a lowly carpenter. He didn't consider equality with God the Father something to be used for his own advantage but made himself nothing. And then makes himself even lower. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't consider equality with God the Father something to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself of his status and his privilege to the point that he became someone who we could ridicule, spit on, mock, make fun of, beat, arrest, strip naked and crucify. God the Son, who was in heaven praised and adored by heavenly hosts of angels, became someone subject to ridicule and nails and the wrath of the Father. 
Never before in history, in the universe, has somebody left something so great to be taken so low and to do it for such enemies. But he did. He stood last, not first, because he considered others more valuable than himself. And here's where it gets really pointy for us. Because that mindset is the mindset that God calls us as Christians to in verse 5. Look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. The same mindset as the guy that stood last, not first. Self-promotion, self-centeredness, self-interest, that me-first attitude that we are all born with, that is out of step with the gospel. It's unworthy of the gospel because it's the very opposite to the mindset of our Lord and Saviour. You actually can't get more opposite to the mindset of Jesus than me first, than self-centeredness, than self-importance. You can't act more out of step with the gospel than that. Now, I find this a confronting passage because me first is my default mode. Self-interest is the operating system that I was born with, which is why I need Jesus to overwrite it. See, I don't need the mindset of Mike with a few tweaks and a few changes. What I need is the mindset of Jesus. And now, oh, now we've got a problem, don't we? Because now, all of a sudden for me, that vision of living a life worthy of the gospel seems a little bit out of reach. It seems too hard. I mean, standing firm for the gospel, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Standing together with you in the gospel, I can do that with you. But standing last, valuing you above me, looking to your interests, not mine, well, now it feels a life worthy of the gospel is slightly out of reach for me. I mean, honestly, who here lives like that? Who amongst us here at UCI lives a life worthy of the gospel like that? Answer? Actually, a lot of people here. I want to give you some examples of how people here amongst us do exactly this, how they live lives worthy of the gospel by standing last. You know, we have people here who every Sunday uh, leave for church early and they go out of their way to pick up others that don't have cars just so they can get them to church on Sunday and then they take them all back on Sunday afternoon and then they repeat that for Friday night to get them to Bible study. Why do they do that? It's because they value others more than what they value their own time their own petrol and their own sleeping on a Sunday. Now, that is not simply picking up people in your car and driving them to church. That is living a life worthy of the gospel because it values others more than what it values yourself. We have people here who spend their Saturday afternoon doing hours worth of shopping for kilos of chicken and rice and then they, then they miss the service on Sunday because they're in the back kitchen cooking lunch for us, that is not simply cutting and frying chicken. That is living a life worthy of the gospel as they stand last because what it is doing is valuing us in here more than what it values them out there and their time. We have students here who don't yet have any children of their own but they serve in creche. Why? Because they value the children. And they value the parents more than what they value themselves and they want to give parents a chance to get into the service every now and then. That is not simply being on the crash register. It is much bigger than that 
That is living a life worthy of the gospel as they value others' interests above their own. And we have Jill, who left us to go and live in the Middle East. Why? Because she values the salvation of those in the Middle East more than what she valued her own comfortable life as an affluent doctor in Perth. And so she emptied herself of her privilege and her status and she has gone to them as a servant. That is a life worthy of the gospel. Now the encouraging thing here is, apart from Jill, do you see what is common in all those other illustrations I gave you? Most of them are kind of ordinary stuff that we just do. Picking up people with no cars, cooking lunch, serving on Sundays, serving in different ways. To live a life worthy of the gospel, you don't need to do something grand. You just need to stand. Stand last. And we have people here who stand last and put others first in all sorts of ways because they're living a life worthy of the gospel. And my hope is that we as a community would do that more and more with every passing year. Because that is how Jesus lived. Paradoxically, that life of standing last, that life of humility and servitude that Jesus lived, in the end, results in him being exalted to stand first. Look at how this passage ends. Verse 9. Therefore, i.e., like because Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After Christ poured out his life in humility, after Christ stood last, God raised him to stand first. Because of his humble service of others, God glorified him and now Christ reigns in heaven and one day will return to reign over all the earth. His life on earth was characterised by standing last in humility and service, but now he stands first at the right hand of God. And we sing a song that captures that dynamic really well. It's the song Jerusalem where we all sing the line, Once the servant of the world, but once last, now in victory reigning, now first. And that pattern of life is the same for those that call Jesus Lord. Our time of standing first is only coming when he returns, when we reign with him in heaven. Our time for standing first will come when he does, but until that day, our life on earth is to be characterised by standing last with each other, just as Jesus did when he was on earth. That is a life worthy of the gospel. Maybe this morning as you look at this passage you feel challenged as you think of standing firm, standing together and standing last and maybe there's elements in there that you realise actually I'm not doing that. That is right and good for us to be challenged by that. But I think mostly this passage is encouraging because there's people all through here in our church who are standing firm, standing together and standing last. These are doable things. Do you want to live a life worthy of the gospel? You don't need to do something grand. That's good news. You just need to learn how to stand. Stand firm for the gospel at your uni, at your work, at the school drop-off gate. That is a life worthy of the gospel and that's doable. Stand together with your brothers and sisters in Christ here 
in unity for the gospel cause. That is a life worthy of the gospel and that is doable. We see it all the time. And stand last. Consider your brothers and sisters in Christ more valuable than yourself. That is a life worthy of the gospel. And again, that is doable because people here do it all the time. This is good news. Stand firm, stand together, stand last. And then at the end of your life, stand in front of Jesus, knowing that you lived a life worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, that he emptied himself, he did not stand first, but stood last, that he considered us more valuable than himself, and in humility went to the cross. Father, we do pray that that might be us more and more. Father, please help us live a life worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus as we stand firm together, as we stand together in unity, and as we stand last with each other like the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.